another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of In the Matter of an Application by the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission for Judicial Review. And the citation for this case, 2018 UKSC 27. For me, this is one of the most important cases of the year so far and concerns the controversial issue of abortion in Northern Ireland. On this subject, Northern Ireland is way out of step with not only the rest of the UK, but also increasingly the rest of the world. Law and public opinion have developed in recent years to offer more rights and protection to women, but in the six counties that make up the North, abortion is still governed by section 58 and 59 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861, in Section 25.1 of the Criminal Justice Act, Northern Ireland, 1945. The effect of this legislation is that abortion is criminalised except where it is done to preserve the life of the mother. Furthermore, as a result of the decision in The Crown Against Born from 1939, an abortion may also be carried out where the continuation of the pregnancy would make the woman a physical or mental wreck. As a consequence, having an abortion remains a criminal activity in a range of circumstances, including the three raised in this judicial review case. Firstly, where the foetus has a serious malformation. Secondly, where the pregnancy has occurred because the woman has been raped. And thirdly, where the pregnancy has occurred as a result of incest. The legal basis for this challenge lies in human rights law and, in particular, Article 3, the prohibition of torture and of inhuman or degrading treatment, Article 8, which is the right to respect for private and family life, and Article 14, which is the prohibition of discrimination. The aim of the case is to achieve a declaration of incompatibility under Section 4 of the Human Rights Act 1998. When the case first went before the High Court, the judge had to first decide whether the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission even had standing to bring a judicial review case, as they were not directly affected by the incompatibility, although specific examples of victims were used throughout the case. Justice Horner held that the Commission did have standing, and then went on to hold that there had been a breach of Article 8, although he adapted the three circumstances that we mentioned earlier, so that abortion should not be criminalised Firstly, where there is a fatal fetal abnormality. Secondly, in rape cases up to the point where the fetus is capable of being born alive. And thirdly, in cases of incest up to the point where the fetus is capable of being born alive. Justice Horner did, however, also hold that there was no incompatibility with Article 3. The Judicial Review got appealed to the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal, While it was agreed that the Human Rights Commission had standing in the case, they did not feel that there was any incompatibility whatsoever with Article 8, or any of the other articles under the European Convention on Human Rights. Before we get to the final decision of the Supreme Court, we must also mention a secondary part of this case that was raised later on by the Attorney General for Northern Ireland in respect of devolution. In particular, their question was whether the Human Rights Commission could bring human rights proceedings where the unlawful act had not been specifically identified. The justices did go through each of the different arguments, and we will do the same, but we do sort of have to give spoilers because the case actually fell at the first hurdle. 
The proceedings were brought under Section 69 of the Northern Ireland Act 1998, and for that purpose constitutes human rights proceedings under Section 71 of the same Act. There are certain restrictions when it comes to this, such that while the Human Rights Commission is not actually required to be a victim itself, there does have to be an actual, identifiable victim in respect of the proceedings. Beyond this, standing was also challenged insofar as the action was brought with respect to an unlawful act. Remember that the Judicial Review was brought in respect of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861 and the Criminal Justice Act Northern Ireland 1945, both pieces of primary legislation. Section 6 of the Human Rights Act 1998 clearly pulls Acts of Parliament outside of its remit and, given the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy, that is hardly a surprising reservation. The question of standing, though, was only decided by a slim majority of 4-3 to three in the Supreme Court, and the interpretation offered by the minority does make for interesting reading. Essentially, the argument is that there are two types of challenge available under the Human Rights Act. Firstly, where victims of an unlawful act by a public authority commence proceedings. This is the standard interpretation used by the majority. Secondly, though, we can also have a general challenge to the compatibility of legislation. Thus, the Human Rights Commission may not have had standing in the first type of case, but, according to the minority at least, would have standing in the second type. To put it another way, there is no requirement for there to be an unlawful act. Lord Kerr for the minority also offered an interesting interpretation of the requirement for a victim. Under Section 71 2BC of the Northern Ireland Act 1998, the reference includes not only victims but also would-be victims as well. That wording suggests that proceedings, such as this one by the Human Rights Commission, could be brought preemptively with no identified victim at all. Lord Kerr even went so far as to say that not allowing a case to be brought in these circumstances would represent the denial of an effective remedy, and therefore itself a breach of Article 13 of the Convention. As we said during the introduction to this judgment, this case did fall at the first hurdle, but on such an important issue, the thoughts of the justices on the substantive human rights issues are definitely worth paying attention to, and so we can start with Article 8, the right to a private and family life. Again, the question was only decided by a slim majority of 4-3, to three, but the conclusion was that abortion law in Northern Ireland is incompatible with Article 8 in three instances. Firstly, fatal fetal abnormality. Secondly, pregnancy deriving from rape. And thirdly, pregnancy deriving from incest. To directly relate this to Article 8, there was no question that we are dealing with an interference to the right to privacy under Article 8, but as a proportional right, we also have to ask whether that interference is justified under Article 8 too. In order to do this, we can go through each of the circumstances in turn. The first circumstance of fatal fetal abnormality is probably the least controversial, not only in the context of this case, but also in society generally. There is simply no potential benefit in forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy to term when the baby will either be stillborn or will die only a few days later. As Lord Mance noted, the law in its current state completely denies women any personal autonomy 
and turns the whole pregnancy into a harrowing experience. This can be contrasted with serious fetal abnormalities that are much more of a grey area. Think about it this way, a baby or fetus that has died no longer has the right to life under Article 2 of the Convention. But a child that is alive, even if it has a serious disability, has the same rights as a non-disabled child. That is the reason why the Supreme Court made this distinction, and followed the High Court in drawing the line here. The same arguments do not exactly replicate themselves in the second circumstance, rape. Here there is much more of a judgement call, and for the majority it was simply felt that where a woman is pregnant as a result of rape, her rights should prevail over the broader community interest. There is little doubt that the evidence presented by the Human Rights Commission was persuasive in this regard. Remember that the definition of rape also covers sex with a minor, and examples were given of children under the age of 13 who had become pregnant as a result of sexual offences committed against a child. Finally, incest is a difficult subject to cover in the abortion debate, but once again, on balance, it was thought that the rights of women outweighed the rights of the community. Again, the evidence suggests that in cases of incest, the sexual offence is more often than not carried out against a younger female relative. The idea of forcing these young women to see the pregnancy to term and then either give the child up for adoption or develop a relationship with the child that may be psychologically traumatising is hard to justify and feels unconscionable. Throughout this extensive discussion, the minority were not silent or even unsympathetic, but did not make a declaration of incompatibility under Article 8. For them, the situation was not materially different from the case of A, B and C against Ireland in 2011, that was heard before the European Court on Human Rights. There, it was held that women do have a right to advice and support with regards to abortion, but that for the abortion itself, they were free to travel to another part of the UK and have it carried out in the NHS. Outside of this question about advice and support, there is no scope for making bold moral declarations about the law on abortion, especially without the chance to examine individual cases as is the situation here with the review brought by the Commission. Finally, we turn to Article 3, and for a majority on this question, there was no incompatibility. Article 3 is an absolute right, and so there is not the same consideration of proportionality that we had with Article 8. Instead, there is a threshold that has to be crossed in order to determine that the treatment falls within the definition. This is especially hard to do when talking in general terms rather than in respect of identifiable victims. Once again, the fact that women can travel to other parts of the UK for an abortion was a factor here. This arrangement is hardly convenient or even pleasant for the women involved, but it does not cross the threshold for the purposes of Article 3. The minority on this question was comprised of Lords Kerr and Wilson, who felt that the risk of severe psychological trauma in the three circumstances already outlined, when talking about Article 8, was sufficient for a declaration. Perhaps most interestingly, though, was the position taken by the President of the Supreme Court, Lady Hale, who declined to comment on the Article 3 case, given that she had already made a decision on the human rights case when she formed part of the majority in the Article 8 discussion. 
When it comes to trying to provide an analysis of this case, any discussion around abortion itself is not going to be of much value. People across the world, never mind just in Northern Ireland, have differing viewpoints on the moral case for or against abortion, and we are certainly not going to arrive at the answer here. Instead, I think that there is great value in discussing the effect of the political situation in Northern Ireland that was mentioned in this case, but has been rather understated throughout. In truth, I think that this is the key to resolving the dispute. Northern Ireland has not had a government since January 2017, and the UK government has shown a reluctance to impose direct rule, instead choosing to legislate here and there to keep things ticking over. This isn't good enough, and means that important questions like this one are not being considered, or are even likely to be considered in the near future. In the meantime, women suffer a direct attack on their human rights. By way of comparison, the Republic of Ireland had a referendum on the subject of abortion earlier this year, and is currently in the process of reforming its own archaic laws on the subject. In fact, as part of their case, the Human Rights Commission presented a number of opinion polls that show support for reforming the law in Northern Ireland, and in fact it is only 29% of the population who believe the law should remain as it currently stands. The problem is that the function of the Supreme Court means that it is not interested or persuaded by any democratic mandate for change. Their role is to interpret the law, and while that is an advanced role in the context of human rights law, there is still a clear division between the judicial and legislative branch that must be maintained. However, this fundamental moral question has turned into a political hot potato. In Northern Ireland, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, Arlene Foster, is not interested in reform and is happy to use the stalemate there as an excuse to do nothing. Meanwhile, in Westminster, Theresa May considers this to be a devolved issue and is also keen not to annoy the Democratic Unionists who are helping to prop up the current Conservative government. In the short term, these might have been legitimate arguments, but this has gone on far too long by this point, and the number of women suffering means that reform needs to happen sooner rather than later. The UK should give the North a time period within which it is expected to make visible progress. If they do not do so, then it is up to Westminster to take the lead and ensure that the country meets its obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to the podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. If you want to check out more of my work, make sure to go to uklawweekly.com. You can find everything there or check out the YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. I'll be back with another case next week. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.